0: Thank you for streaming our show. This is an EconoCast with Greg Layden and me. I'm Mike Habrick. Yes, yes, it's been a while since we published a podcast, but this one is worth the wait. Karen Stallsno is our guest. I need to warn our listeners in advance about two features of this particular show. The first is that it is a longer episode than our usual. This one clocks in at about 85 minutes. And being a podcast, you do have the option of listening in smaller bites. Here and there, take a chunk and listen, and then come back to it and finish up. Dr. Stelson is a linguist, earning her Ph.D. at the University of New England in Australia. And this is a show about words. It's a show about dialect and how people are judged by the way they talk and the language that we choose to use. So, a few choice words are cuss, swear, curse, dirty, horrible words. Some of the George Carlin Seven Words are in the podcast, so... If you're listening with your kids and don't want them to come back with you as the salty language of an Aussie, you may want them to listen to Wiggles for an hour or so while you learn. Since this show is longer than our normal, I'm not going to drag out this intro. I will say that because Dr. Stolzner was also a noted skeptic and fiction author as well as academic and popular nonfiction author, this is a wide-ranging and enjoyable interview. So, here we go.
1: Karen, we wanted to start out by asking you to comment on a phenomenon well-known to Americans, the ability for someone to sound authoritative, perhaps more authoritative than it should sound, because they have a British accent or similar. We in no way are implying here that you are using your British accent in this interview to claim undeserved authority, of course, but generally, what are your thoughts on the relationship between you know, affect, accent, dialect, and perception of knowledgeability or other ability?
2: Uh, I also need to practice this by saying that I'm not a phonologist, so. Uh, phonetics sounds of language that that's not my uh, that's not my specialty at all. Uh, however, I can talk to elements of sociolinguistics and uh, just prejudice and stereotypes about uh, accents. And okay. I think it is a very interesting thing, uh, and it's something I write a little bit about in my forthcoming book uh, about stereotyping and accents. And I did see that you mentioned something in the email about uh, positive stereotyping. And I think my perspective is that all stereotyping can be negative to a point. Because even if you have a seemingly positive stereotype that maybe Asian people are good at maths or something like that, that really, it's ultimately negative insofar as you are uh, making generalizations, you have a fixed idea about this entire group of people you're pasting this onto an entire group and if this is not true if this is not the case with everyone then it's a it's a negative thing it can be an insulting thing an offensive thing so i think that uh, when it comes to accents we absolutely do pass judgment on people the moment that they open their mouth and a lot of that is accent based and we do really attribute a lot of preconceived ideas towards accents so uh, i think Quite a bit of work has been done uh, on this in the literature over the years, but uh, I think a lot of the assumptions are quite commonly known, and that is if you hear a British accent, you're going to think that it sounds authoritative, that it sounds educated, and so, again, we're just attributing stereotypes to that accent. If you hear an Australian accent, mine's a little bit different. I guess I'm a bit more of a citizen of the world. I don't Mm -hmm. sound quite so much like maybe my father or Steve Irwin, and they have more of a broad Australian English or, or had more of a a broad Australian English accent and people often think that Australian people sound slow or they sound drunk or they sound (laughs) stupid um and of course there are assumptions that are made here in the United States about various accents you can hear a New York accent or a Californian accent you might think oh that person sounds uh uh, like they're casual and they're fun and they're hip whatever whatever you want to think about that Uh, whereas a, a New York accent might sound more authoritative or more educated And then when it comes to Southern accent, people will attribute all kinds of labels that that person is uh, stupid, that they're uneducated, of low intelligence, that they're racist. Um, You know, these are a lot of stereotypes that we encounter in the media anyway. So we we just hear an accent and we make assumptions about a person's intelligence and their education. Uh, And certainly, I guess you could use a more educated sounding accent to cover uh, a lack of knowledge about something to, to sound uh, as though you you know more about something than you, you really do. I think that there was an episode of uh, bullshit with uh, Penn and Teller years ago where uh, they were I think it was Penn was screaming at a chihuahua but he was <laughs> screaming words of love and uh, just going and then was talking gently to this chihuahua but making it but talking in, in using violent language so i think that there's a lot to be said about the way that you uh you present something uh you can really certainly hide and conceal a lot of things by uh by accent or the way that we present things you can certainly come across as more educated than you are or less educated than you are just based on the way that people perceive you
1: yeah i i would i also think that in the famous early linguist, I think his name was Pike, who did a lot of work on American accents, and later I think it was Marvin Harris did some work on this. Uh, the, the sort of the origins of 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 American language, American accent, it it can get pretty sophisticated and complicated. For example, the Southern accent you mentioned uh, includes a kind of accent that I think is it, it conveys uh, the assumption of a certain political orientation of conservatism and so on. Mm-hmm. And that accent, when I go to certain parts of the Upper Plains here in Minnesota and so on, I hear that accent all the time. And it's not because people have migrated north, it's because it's a rural accent also. It's, so I, you can tell the difference mm-hmm. between a Tennessee accent and a rural Minnesota accent, but they both have a very similar drawl to it. And, and also, I think we often hear a southern accent, it depends on who's using it, but there is a Tennessee Williams version of it and the uh, Mark Twain version of it. Like we see Mm -hmm. wisdom in some of the Southern or a genteel uh, uh, culture at at one Mm -hmm. end of the spectrum versus the Hatfields and the McCoy in West Virginia Mm -hmm. on the other end. So I think actually we get pretty detailed in our bias triggers sometimes with our Yes,
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd have to say that uh, when I said the Southern accent, there's certainly no one single Southern accent. There are lots of different Southern accents. Uh, and absolutely you do have, uh, I mean, these uh, perceptions change over time and space. And uh, so absolutely you might have a, an image of more of a, a genteel type uh, of Southern character who owns a plantation and is just very well-spoken and uh, uh, as opposed to a more of a, a redneck or trailer trash accent.
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> kind, of yeah like it, a Savannah, <laughs> kind of like a Savannah accent as opposed to a Decatur georgia accent so it's not even just one georgia accent there's several georgia accents yeah oh,
2: absolutely and lots of accents in uh, louisiana and mm. uh, with some their their rhotic, which is you know, pronouncing the r uh in others that they don't you know i think in, in some parts of kansas they don't and um so yeah, it really really depends and uh certainly i think there'll be other features that will cause us to judge people too the way that they look uh, so i do not subscribe to the idea of body language I think that you there are just so many interpretations that you can have of body language uh, you can take a, a certain mannerism and say oh this means this particular thing and uh, certainly there are lots of experts supposed experts I'm using quotey fingers here uh, that will say oh well, this is exactly what this way is if you sit a particular way then that means this uh, and you can interpret all these different kinds of mannerisms but I think that it's uh, a lot more subjective than that Uh, but certainly we we judge people by the way that they sound the way that they look the way they speak their grooming everything about them the entire package and uh, uh, you know you can't judge a book by its color I guess is the the lesson here.
1: Yeah I've been reading a lot of antebellum and civil war period uh, history U.S. mostly U.S. history and lately and it's very interesting to see Mm -hmm. In the original uh, text and dialogue, you have people regularly by people in authority, by newspaper editors and publishers and journalists, or by highly Mm -hmm. placed, you know, elected officials and so on, characterizing other people by their physical appearance. I'm not talking about a racist like he's black or he's white. I'm talking about this person has the nose Mm -hmm. of someone you would expect to be intelligent or that person is obviously unable to do certain things because they have the wrong shape mouth and, and, or the way that they <laughs> walk. And and they're characterized that way. And and of course, the, the voice and the accent is always included or often included in there as well. And it seems it's a kind of dis- discussion that if, if you had it among the, say, right now in the US, we're having this, this primary system and we have 20-something tw- Democratic Party nominee candidates, if they were talking about each other that way, the exact mm-hmm. way that candidates were talking about each other in 1830s or 1840s, it would be a major uproar. So it isn't, we certainly judge people this way. We do judge people yeah. by their looks, but we don't <laughs> say it out loud as much as we used to.
2: Uh, yeah, and I think that was a point I was going to make too. I think we, we pass judgment on people and we tend to keep it to ourselves. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of that uh, alleged Scientific study. I keep thinking phrenology, but I think that's the shape of the person's head. Yeah, but that's pretty uh, close. That's uh, in the
1: same uh, category for sure.
2: Yeah. Yes, uh, I'm thinking in terms of. Uh, sorry, uh, we just got a new kitten, and she's getting into everything. <laughs> oh, she's okay. I just <laughs> just watching her climb very high and and falling from things, but she's <laughs> fine. Always seem to land on their feet. But it's uh, very distracting, uh, and. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. We um, Historically, people have made statements about people and assumed that people who are classically unattractive are somehow bad, that that uh, reflects our personality, and that if someone's classically attractive or beautiful, that that means that they're a good person and uh, that that reflects their insides. And uh, you know, we you certainly know that that's not the case today.
1: And also... So people, we have, people were, still
2: have those biases to some extent.
1: Yeah, I, I, people were given uh accolades for being good at this if you were a, if you're in a in a position an important government position or something like that, you wanted to have an assistant who could who could read a person's uh moral character by the way that they looked from a distance because that person had to prime you or make sure that person didn 't have access to you or whatever i mean that was just <laughs> yeah, it was, actually,
2: and it's just yeah,
1: it was a skill it was, it was an important skill that people <laughs> had to have now, you have written a book that I have not read your primary, um, I think it's, it's the language of discrimination. And I've oh. not read it, I've not read it, but I, because it costs $177.60. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's actually, you know, as an anthropologist. You're,
2: you're very cheap, you have been very cheap here. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but seriously, um, it, as an anthropologist, one thing I've gotten really interested in, I, I, I talk and write about race and racism and uh, lately, mm-hmm. I'm expanding that discussion more into how biases from society shape the, the on-the-ground racism uh, that we see and uh, mm-hmm. system- systematic biases and so on. And at the same time, I've also been getting really interested in, in rhetoric and how uh, the way that we say things shapes the uh, degree to which the potency or the power in those messages and how uh, right. using things like metaphor and euphemism and, and so on can make your messages uh uh more memorable or more meaningful or more honest sounding or more mm-hmm. authoritative sounding and so on and that it sounds like to me like your book and your studies of linguistics as your main academic studies kind of put those together a lot you you put together could you could you describe oh. the sort of the thesis of your book and tell us about how your forthcoming book is going to be a cheap version of your expensive book <laughs> <laughs>
2: hope it's going to be a cheap version. It depends on who publishes it. Uh, But yeah, the the book that you're referring to, The Language of Discrimination, is essentially a copy of my, as we would call it in Australia, thesis. But here you would call it a dissertation, so PhD dissertation. I know thesis is more honours or master's level here. Uh, so, yeah, it's published by Lincom and, and it's an outrageous amount of money. I think I've had two sales, though. So I don't know who purchased these. Perhaps it was an institution or something. I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, that that was a semantic analysis of a number of words related to the processes of discrimination. So uh, it probably sounds like mumbo jumbo and, and in many ways it is. Uh, I use a uh, method of semantic analysis called natural Semantic meta language, and it was using prime terms that are believed to be used across languages, uh, all existing languages, uh, to to define these various words. And um, so, the obviously, no one wants to read that uh, on a a popular trade scale. So, uh, this is a complete reworking of my thesis and very, very much expanded. Uh, Now, I have pretty much put this together. uh, I guess I've been formulating this in my mind for about 10 years, uh, this book. And it is, so it's absolutely, a. am wanting it to be a trade book. Uh, I'm looking at a a couple of publishers right now and they are academic, but they're also wanting to branch out into trade, which is I think the only way that a lot of these Mm -hmm. publishing houses can actually stay alive. Uh, But so this is, this book is tentatively called Why Is That Offensive? And it's looking at everyday Discrimination, prejudice, and tolerance in language. And so, initially, I wanted to look at uh, modern language. And it's really difficult to talk about insulting terms without looking at etymology, which is the word origins and meanings.
3: Ah, mm-hmm.
2: uh, and so I w- certainly won't say that the original meaning of something stands the test of time. Certainly, we have evolution. Uh, you know, uh, I can get into talking about skeptics and and their perspective on linguistics later on, but yeah. like that word meanings change, they evolve. Um, you know, I, I've come across a lot of people who just rail against certain usages uh, or certain spellings and, and various things like that. And, and uh, language evolves just like we do. And, uh, you know, obviously. And so I've, I've had to look at word origins to see why a lot of words today carry baggage. Why are words today, are uh, offensive, especially if they're more archaic sounding. Uh, and then, through to looking at uh, terms that are offensive today, microaggressions is a, a big part of the book as well. Um, you know, I'm trying to be careful to not make it just a how-to guide to insult people by listing <laughs> a lot of these offensive terms. But uh, I'm trying to look at, trying to kind of nut them open, break them open, uh, unpack them, and see, you know, what's offensive about them, um, and so in some ways, this might be looked at as a work of, of social justice.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but being a linguistic work, it's not so much a don't do this. It's not so much a prescriptive guide. It's more of a description. I'm trying to identify these terms and to look at uh, why they're offensive. But again, this book will probably be redundant like many books are in a couple of decades because words evolve and they change uh, change meaning. And um, But it's just a snapshot, I guess, uh, looking at historical meanings and uh, through to, to words and how they're used today. So a big part of that is looking at euphemisms and uh, looking at metaphor. Um, you know, euphemisms are, are very interesting in that uh, with some areas of language, we try to find euphemisms to make concepts seem less harsh and less offensive. And then the new terms that we've created will take on those same negative connotations of the predecessors. And uh, and be equally offensive. So it's something that we see. If I, you, you want me to give a common everyday example, something like uh, the words toilet uh, that has oh. had lots of different different words over the years, like water closet and privy, uh, latrine, uh, then toilet. And nowadays, we especially in the states tend to talk about a restroom. Mm. In Australia, we might talk about a bathroom because we're not wanting to talk about the toilet, the thing that is in the room. Uh, so that's a kind of everyday example. Uh, but if I want to look at terms that can be discriminatory, we could look at terms related to intellectual or physical disability, and how uh, mm-hmm. there are older terms which are very offensive. And so then we introduce new terms to uh, to be less offensive, and then unfortunately they end up adopting those same negative connotations. So that's uh, Stephen Pinker called that the euphemism treadmill.
0: Mm-hmm. There's another word in in a. I find it offensive and I don't really want to say it, but Ricky Jervis says it a lot. He says we shouldn't be offended by it because way oh. back in the highlands of Scotland, they used to say it as a, um, as a way of calling each other um, nerds or something like that. And so he, he refuses to stop using it. Um, even though in the modern definition of it, it's very sexist because it, it it puts down women by describing them by a body part. Um, and And um, even if you use it to refer to a man, it's basically just um, a way of putting them down by by telling them that they don't really belong to the male gender, that they belong to the female gender. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those words, I think, that has an origin that may be different from the current, where the etymology is something that... People who refuse to accept that it might be offensive will say, well, in the original <laughs> words, it was not offensive yeah, yeah, oh, sex-wise.
2: Yeah, you, you hear that argument a lot. You hear people say, oh, the original meaning is somehow pure or true or uncorrupt, uh, and that's not the case. But, you know, you can look at it both ways, too. You can look at a term that was formerly offensive that is uh, that might still be offensive, or you can look at a term that wasn't offensive and has become offensive as it is pejorated um and you know either way you need to really listen to people and and to hear their perspectives and understand why these terms are offensive and again i'm not telling people don't use these terms and Mm -hmm. during the course of this conversation we can either use these words in a clinical sense or not uh i've often been put in that situation where i use the terms and then i've offended people or if i don't People will say you're a linguist. You should be using these mm-hmm. terms. You should be talking about these terms. But I know with Ricky Gervais, he's done that uh, with another term. If I can use it, uh, he's used the term "mong." And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this case. No. It was going back a couple of years ago. He used it on Twitter, and uh, he was I was uh, I can't remember the exact context in which he used that term, but. He was saying, oh, look, that term is is not offensive anymore. I remember when I was a kid uh, growing up and every Christmas time, my mother would make me go and collect all of the toys that I didn't want anymore that I'd grown out of. And she'd say, let's go and give them to the mongoloid children. And so that was the the kind of accepted term at that time um, for for, uh, children who had Down syndrome. That was the kind of common everyday term. Right. And obviously, that's not the case now. We use the term Down syndrome. We we don't talk about mongoloid. Um, we don't use that term. And uh, I think the uh, the the country itself actually approached the um, World Health Organization and lobbied to have the term changed sure. uh, a couple of decades ago because you know they said this represents us as a people, and this isn't is not a condition. And I'm trying to think of the name of the fellow who first. Labeled the the uh, condition, and uh, he he was racist in his labelling. He thought that this ter- that uh, these people looked like they were from Mongolia. Uh, yeah, Ricky Gervais just initially refused to, to use the term, and he said, "I'm not using this in in, a, in an offensive way, and this doesn't mean this anymore." And uh, I I don't think we can really dictate what these words mean. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we do just need to listen to the people who are offended by them and, and try to understand why they're offensive, and, and then you, know, you need to make the adult choice whether you use these terms or not.
1: Right. Uh, An opposite mm-hmm. example might be hysterical or hysteria, Right, because that is a, a term, I'd like to know what you think about it, but th- that's a term that uh, re- it refers to a female characteristic known to be widespread mm-hmm. in the 19th century, <laughs> and apparently women have stopped, have changed, or maybe our views of women have changed. and. Uh, but it, it now means something's either really funny or something's someone is out of control with being upset about something, which is what the 19th century right. women supposedly did. So, so and and I, I that that's we haven't I haven't seen that conversation in a while. But that's one of those conversations where people say it doesn't mean that I'm using something else. Therefore, I can use a term or it's an old meaning mm-hmm. or whatever. What how does how does the word is that in your book? How, how does the word hysteria fit
2: in? You know, I do. I, I don't treat it uh, in great depth. Uh, I'm still doing a few revisions and I think I will be going back and doing that because uh, I have a friend, Mike McCray, uh and he's written a book and it's famous, escapes me right now. Uh, but he, he has treated a lot of these concepts that we have uh, basically medicalised uh, a lot of um, terms that, uh, you know, or... or Concepts that we have treated as being uh, as being conditions, for example, homosexuality, until I think the 1970s, that was believed to be a condition that was believed to be some kind mm-hmm. of disease and was classified as such in the DSM, I think, too And uh, there was some kind of uh, I think vote that the psychologists who contribute to this uh, this guide actually. Uh, voted to take that out of the the DSM Um, but there was a lot of opposition to that that people were still considering that to be a condition but uh, I mean there's I certainly do have a section that is on mental illness and uh, is on disease and physical disability and intellectual disability there's just a a lot of very interesting language that's related to that Uh, and certainly it's those are it's another set of terms that is part of the euphemism treadmill that we might have referred to people who had who have some kind of mental illness historically as being lunatics uh, or as uh, you know even the terminology that was used until quite recently talking about lunatic asylums uh, people being mad people being crazy people being stupid uh, it's very difficult to not use these terms I was raised using these terms uh, in school and To this day, we still hear them around us all the time. Uh, But certainly, if we look at the the histories of these terms, they can be considered offensive because of all the baggage that they have and the connotations that they have.
1: Right. So how does that work right now with um, people with mental disabilities? And, you know, if you just go back in literature not very far, you see, like, the census. I believe this American census used to have a category for idiot. I think it was idiot. And that was people who right. were, in, uh, who were of some perceived to be of some particular mental condition and may have been institutionalized, <laughs> or may not have been, I'm not sure. Um, and you know, how does it, if, if we have an attitude about people who have a certain condition, how mm-hmm. fast does a new word that's not offensive become the same exact thing as the old word because our attitude hasn't changed?
2: Yeah, uh, I think that can happen very quickly. It can really happen within a couple of years, a couple of decades. Uh, So a good example is a term like mental retardation. And that was introduced sometime in the 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. And that very quickly has developed negative connotations. Uh, If we look at terms like retard, um, a lot of people will will refer to the R word instead and and parallel that to other terms. Um, It's deemed to be that offensive. Uh, I still hear that a lot. And I think it's another term that Ricky Gervais uses. (laughs) And <laughs> or has mm. used and, uh, and mocked people like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, this this can happen very quickly. Now, uh, I think I'm trying to think of the name of the organisation. It could be uh, one of the. Uh, they, they changed their name recently to Scope, and I'm not sure if it was the Spastic Society or Spastic Centre in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, but already that term Scope has been used as an insult. People will refer to Scopers.
3: Uh huh. Um, oh, right.
2: So you know, people as being uh, you know uh having some kind of intellectual disability. Uh, but there there certainly been dozens of terms that have been over the years used over the years and they're just all pejorated. And uh yes, idiots was a clinical term and so was moron. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I this is all in the book I go into it with a lot of detail, but these were classifications uh, based on IQ and um, you know, so if, if people were to have one of these diagnoses then that could lead to them being institutionalized, it could lead to them even being sterilized. Right. Uh so there's a lot of very negative and serious baggage that's surrounding these terms. And uh, we we use these terms very flippantly today. But uh once you delve into the history and you see just uh, the terrible things that have happened to these people and, and then very negative connotations of these terms, it really does make you reconsider. And you know, we have millions of words in the English language. Surely there's a, a better insult that you can come up with for someone than to uh, imply that they they have an intellectual disability.
1: Right. Now, is that a category of insult, an insult that you come up with to insult a specific person versus the insult that actually drags a whole lot of other people into the insult at the same time?
2: Oh, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, certainly you could look at a, a term like uh, retard and that does uh, really refer to, uh, I mean, on a, a uh, literal level that could refer to a group of people right. historically. Uh, and But if you look at a term like asshole, then no, you could say right. well, that's just a bad person. You could look at... Uh, can I swear? <laughs> I yeah, guess you have been anyway.
3: You can swear, yeah. Uh, but if you, look at term, <laughs>
2: you look at a term like fuckwit, and you could say, oh, fuckwit is just a, a, a person of low intelligence. But then you could see pretty quickly uh, with a term like wit, anything that references head or references yeah. the brain, um, references somehow defective thinking, um, a lack of intelligence, then that could be uh, linked back to intellectual disability.
3: Yep. So I think that's
2: right. why people find stupid insulting and crazy insulting because it's referring to uh, people's mental competence or their mental health. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of these terms, uh, and again, you could talk about another term like, uh, and I guess this is a word you didn't want to say before. Can I use the C word or, or should I not? Should yeah, go it? I just word. didn't want to. You're the, you're the certified linguist. <laughs> well, you'll let me yeah. do it, yeah. I'll do it yeah. in a clinical way. So yeah. <laughs> if you look at a word like like, uh, it's She's the bad one. We She's have to look one. at context as well.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. Right.
2: <laughs> we we have to look at, at context as well because uh, where I come from in Australia, it is an everyday word. It is used for friends. You can say how how are you going, the old cunt. Haven't seen you in years, and that's an affectionate term. Right. Uh, I know that it's highly offensive in the United States, and I have used it a lot around my husband, and initially. Um, he was he was offended. Oh, I can't believe you're saying that. And, and I was using it in a, a literal sense and in a figurative sense as an insulting in all the ways he possibly can. And he was just really taken aback and could believe I was using this. But I was socialised into thinking this is a kind of everyday term and it can mm-hmm. absolutely be used as an insult um, to refer to a despicable person. Mm-hmm. But here I do understand uh, why it is offensive uh, from a feminist perspective because it is. A term that has developed negative connotations, and yet it is referring to, in some senses, a part of the female anatomy. Right. So it's again, I think we just need to look at context. We need to look at whether something, how how things are, how words are offensive over time and space. Because uh, again, in Australia, it's an accepted term. It's not the kind of term that you use in school. It's not the kind of term that you would use in most places of business, but certainly you would use it amongst people that you know. So again, you've got this kind of Environment or domain uh, in which you could use this term quite legitimately, and then here it's it's considered to be more offensive and I understand that too if we look at terms uh, a lot of terms have become derogatory over hundreds of years that are that are related to women, um, whether it's female body parts or whether it's even names for women uh, even terms for uh, I'm just trying to think of some examples but well, would, uh,
0: would bloody was that does bloody have an origin that's uh, gender based like i know that's I can say it with ease, but somebody from England, bloody yeah bloody bastard or oh. you know would
2: i think i mean the, that's interesting you could say you, you could uh, write that uh I don't think that it has any uh any link to menstrual no. Uh, uh, you know, to, to had... menstruation or something. But I, I think that that's basically the reason that that has been offensive. Not so much. It's still offensive in the UK. And I think even going back a couple of mm-hmm. decades ago, there were some cases where uh, politicians had used the term and they were just lambasted by the media for, for using this term. In Australia, it is another one of those everyday terms. Oh, you, you mm-hmm. bloody bastard or bloody mm-hmm. hell. Um, not used so much here. Uh, I don't think I use it so much now that I live here but the, the reason that that has been offensive is because it was profane. It was blasphemous. So that would refer to oh. uh, the blood of Jesus Christ.
3: Oh, right. uh, but I mean,
2: but if we want to break everything down, I mean, even terms like, um, you know, um, good day, um, you know, going back further in time has reference to God, you know, have a a god day a godly day so uh yeah there are terms that we just use now and they're cultural relics and we can either continue to give them some kind of meaning um that that we find offensive or not um they can be stripped of their offensive meaning um i mean all different kinds of things can happen to words they're just various we call them semantic processes terms can ameliorate which means that they improve or they can pejorate, which means that they uh, become more opprobrious, they become more offensive over time and that happens with a lot of terms too. A good example would be uh, maybe aid or AIDS
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, or a word like, you, you would say ass, I would say ass um, for, for donkey, That now that's no longer used because people tend to think of, you know, ass, ass, the backside, um, so so that's no longer in use. Um and and AIDS as well. There was a name of a uh, appetite suppressant candy that was around in the seventies, and then
3: yeah,
2: yeah. AIDS, the, the autoimmune deficiency um, disease, came out, and and that's had a lot of different names over the years too. I mean, at one term, I, at one time, I think it was called the four H disease, and that was the belief that it came from people from Haiti, or it came from uh, you know from gay men, homosexual men. Um, and of course, homosexual has lots of connotations too. And, and a lot of people don't like to use that term anymore because, uh, it, it is used by conservatives and it's used by, um, the religious right in, in an offensive way. So people prefer gay or, uh, LGBT and all the variants of that. So really, this is just a, <laughs> this conversation is a, a cesspit. <laughs>
1: It is. I, I one. Of the, I, I spent a fair amount of time in South Africa, and South Africa and Australia are probably more like each other than America is to Australia. But it's quite distinctly different, also. And one of the things mm-hmm. that happens in English-speaking South African language is there's a cultural feature of bodiness. It just mm-hmm. uh, this may be true in Australia too, but it's it's like if you if you listen to a bunch of people talking at a bar having beer, and there aren't five or six body references to something body. Every five minutes, mm-hmm. and you, if you're with tourists, you're not with South Africa. <laughs> and uh, even to the point where, where this is even used in the iconography, like for example, it's probably no accident that the uh, association of taxi cab drivers—you know—that someone's a member of that because they have a bumper sticker on their cab that says "taxi ass." <laughs>
3: you know,
1: like there's—it's it, just it, to, to an American eye, it's just, it just—it just seems a little bit too contrived all along. And and and, and if you look at the, at the Afrikaans verbiage. It's worse. Mm-hmm. So it comes from that area. It comes from the Dutch and the African. And it's, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's intense, but interestingly there, a terminology that I, that I, that, that I saw become normal, that I saw as being normal is which, which America has got really offended at is the use of mm-hmm. the word girl or old girl. And girl simply means a woman in South African mm-hmm. English. So uh, how are you doing girl or what's the old girl up to? It means a person who's mm-hmm. simply an adult who's female and Mm -hmm. it's interesting. And that's completely 100% not seen even in the body sense. It is not seen as having absolutely any meaning whatsoever to a typical Mm -hmm. South African person. But it, and most Americans don't respond to it much either, but I've, I've seen it. I've seen that fight happen between Americans and South Africans about the use of the word girl to refer to a woman.
2: Yeah, I think um, that that could be offensive here because uh, you're, Maybe talking down to a woman by uh, implying right. that she's she's a girl, and certainly, certainly when it comes to the word "boy," right. uh, there are many problems with that in the United States um, when directed towards the black community. Um, so yeah. I I'm just: not
1: well, if you're not an American sure. if you're an American who's concerned about the word "boy," like that, which is legitimate,, mm-hmm. yep. and you go to South Africa, yep. you will not notice anyone referring to "guys. But guys in South Africa means boy. Oh, wow. It's a black man. And it's, uh, it, okay. you know, it's, just, it's just, at least uh, what, at the, during the time that I spent a lot of time, that was current at the time. And, and it never, uh, never cool. really being in it, it's not derogatory, it's just I'm talking about the guys who are over there. Mm-hmm. And that means that the black African men that are over there, as opposed to the white African okay. men in the other direction.
2: A referential term, yeah. And here, uh, I think some people are starting to get upset about the use of the term guys. Uh, I've tried to take Obama's uh, lead and to say spokes, even though that's not really used very much in Australia. Uh, Of course, you've got to be careful with a term like you people or something like that too, Mm -hmm. because that can have racist connotations. But uh, I think some people are becoming upset about the use of uh, guys uh, or dudes because that's a term that was originally used towards men and is now being used uh, towards parties of women too. But you couldn't have the reverse of that. If you walked into a group of guys, of men, sitting down and and there, again, it's just my natural inclination to say that because I was raised that way. But if you walk into a room of men and you said, hey, ladies, think about the connotations there. Um, So I think that some some women are finding offensive to be addressed as guys or dudes. Right. Um, because You the can say that if you're a drill armies.
1: sergeant, of yeah, course. It's used in the military to yeah. refer to men in the military, yeah. ladies.
2: But another word, too. Well, my husband was, so yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Another word, too, oh, that, is, that
2: has
0: a. I'm sorry, Karen. Uh, no, worries. I was just going to say, there's another word, too. It's um gals, and I didn't realize this until I moved to California, but um, gals was a racist, racist term used towards um, African-American women by racist men. And I had no idea until I was talking to a black, uh, black woman and she said she went down to South San Francisco, which is a, she had, she said, she walked <laughs> into the bar. She said, somebody said, well, what do you gals want? She was really offended by it. And I said, I I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I I might've called you a gal if I had known that. But yeah, it was uh, something that is perceived as a way. It's like a female version of boy when referring to African-American.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, oh, I was actually... I wanted to, uh, to go back a little bit and just talk um, just briefly and say, uh, you know, certainly, again, this is something that we need to treat across time and space. So terms that are offensive in America may or may not be offensive in Australia. They may or may not be offensive in South Africa. Uh, I, I'm wondering if maybe the, the puritanical background of the United States might have something to do with uh, terms being more offensive than they are in other countries. But you were talking about pub behaviour. And I think that uh, we also need to look at something like um, the overt or or covert, um, uh, what term am I trying to think of? Uh, I mean, if you go into a bar, obviously you're going to speak very differently to the way that you speak to people if you're in a bank or if you're addressing a classroom full of students. So uh, if you are in a bar, I think it kind of, you're not going to go into a bar in the UK and start speaking like the queen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's going to have, that might have more of an overt prestige uh, in, in many other kinds of domains. But uh, in that environment, you're probably going to get beaten up. So you, you want to, to, to swear and to have, uh, you know, use a different kind of accent that's going to be, have more of a um, a covert prestige in that kind of situation. So, you know, we're just dealing with all of these dynamics competing at the same time. We're dealing with people, uh, you know, travelling and tourists and being in different areas uh, and being subjected to words that they might not hear in their own country and how they perceive those. And then, do you even say something or do you just conceal it and think, "Well, that's offensive," and you don't you don't tackle that with the person or do you say something? Um, so we we could talk about these areas for for many many hours. So. Oh, well, I just wanted to kind of address that, but you, you
1: were going to ask me something else? Well, I, I, just following on something you said earlier, you, you had mentioned the skeptic community and how skeptics think and talk. And that's obviously, you know, you're a mm-hmm. linguist, but you're also an expert on skepticism and a, and a well-known <laughs> skeptic sort of spokesperson, spoke girl, spokes spokesgal. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, Careful. <laughs> you, you've uh, you, you mentioned this before, how does the whole process or problem of language, meaning, and the history of words play out in the skeptics world in a way that makes us both, you know, lets us laugh at some of the skeptics or respect some of their, you know, with, with the important points they're making. How does, how does this, when you, when you put the, the idea that you really have to think about everything in a rational
3: mm-hmm.
1: perspective, and there is a rational perspective, and I know what it is, mm-hmm. and when you say something different than I'm thinking, then you're obviously not being rational. How does that fit in with what you know about language and use of words and meaning?
2: Oh, again, lots of things that you've raised there that are really interesting to kind of unpack. Um, but I think just in, in general, when it comes to uh, just to address the first thing where you said gal, being you know, a skeptic gal, person right. expert, I think the best thing to do is to always ask someone how they want to be addressed or how they identify. I think you can't go wrong if you say, you know, how do you want me to address you? They're not never going to be offended by that. Uh, and then they can tell you what pronoun they want to use, what name they they want to use, how they identify. So I think that's always a good tip. Uh, but with skeptics, interesting bunch, interesting bunch mm-hmm. of people. Uh, lots of ups and downs. I've tinkered with the idea over the last couple of years of really writing about skepticism and and the the, the great fall of skepticism. I'm sure there are certainly other uh, areas and sections of skeptics that, of the the community there'd be people who even deny that there's a movement or that there's a community, uh, but people who, who would deny that anything has happened, that everything is still exactly the same as it was and nothing ever happened. And, and there's still a great atheist movement or a great skeptical movement.
0: It's and this you, uh, Claudia had bad experiences apparently with the uh, skeptic movement, didn't she? Yes.
2: And there's mm-hmm. certainly a work of fiction, but uh, mm-hmm. there, <laughs> there are plenty of, real cases that we can point to of people being disgruntled with the skepticism movement. But they're they're an interesting bunch of people and I think that a lot of them are very scientifically minded. Um, But when it comes to language, they can't seem to draw the same parallel. So we were talking about language evolving. So a lot of skeptics and people who are scientifically minded will certainly uh, understand the concept of evolution and and how that that works in the scientific world, but on a social level, uh, they they don't comprehend that. They seem to think that there's a that language words have original, true, pure meanings. They do have this this bias, this kind of folk linguistic understanding of how language works. And uh, I remember years ago. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, a fellow named James Randi.
3: Yeah.
2: And I was at a conference that was Dragon Con, back in 2008 and I was at a coffee shop with him. So let's call it a cafe. And he was very, very, very upset that the cafe that we were sitting at on their menu, they didn't have the accent ague on the e. <laughs> okay.
3: <laughs>
2: and so I, I kind of tried to explain to him, well, this is, a, this is America. And people speak American English here, and uh, over time we've lost that that, uh, that accent. We don't need that anymore, but we still pronounce it this way. And he said, "Well, this, without that accent it, it's case
3: right.
2: <laughs> and so, so i I explained it to him, and he uh, you know I was not trying to be uh, offensive or act like I knew more than him, and again, these are just perspectives. But I just tried to explain to him the linguistic perspective on language change and evolution. And uh, I mean, to me, it's like an easy leap to make. But if you understand evolution when it comes to science, you'll understand it when it comes to social science and humanities and people and language. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was very, very uh, pig headed about it. And uh, over the years, I've spoken with other linguist friends who. Had conversations, similar conversations with him, with him railing against language and language change, and how he thinks this should be pronounced this way, uh, or should be spelled a certain way, and that if if not, then that's it's incorrect.
1: It so, all depends on what uh, shore you went Greg, to. It all depends on what surely you went to. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So, Greg, you would understand. I'm sorry. No, go ahead uh Greg, as a, an anthropologist you would you will appreciate this, that uh that um these things when they're different, we we view them to be different. We don't view them to be uh deficient. So uh we can look at non standard varieties of languages and accents and dialects and uh as, as linguists or as anthropologists you don't say, Oh, this is wrong. We don't say this is deficient, we just say this is different. Right. And um you know there so there are lots of different perspectives but i've just encountered lots of skeptics over the years who think that you can apply that same scientific rigor to language that you tend to be the hard sciences and of course there's some people who'd say oh look i don't like the the the, the, the uh uh different terms using uh talking about the hard sciences this this soft sciences and that's, sure. that's derogatory in some way too but um uh, yeah, certainly you you just can't look at language the same way that you look at science. And, um, you know, we need to just understand that language is changing and we need to just kind of go with the flow and certainly to look at younger generations because they often dictate
3: right.
2: how these these changes are, are coming in. And then they just diffuse throughout society. And, um, you know, then we, we die off and, and these new changes take place and uh, but I mean, this has just been going on for, this argument has been go, going on for as long as print has been around. Uh, I mean, recorded anyway. Yes. Um, and a lot of it has people to do with railed against,
1: Yeah, a lot of it has to do with print. Yes, printing.
2: it does, it does. The standardization of the the, the uh, spelling because of uh, the printing press and all of the influences from other languages. Again, this is just a, another Pandora's box.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, people have just railed against all different kinds of strange linguistic artifacts, like using the term mob mm-hmm. from mobile um to indicate a group of people. And nowadays that's just commonly used and, and that can have racist connotations too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just, this is a huge topic and uh, just so many different perspectives and, uh, and connotation coming into this. And it's um, a yeah, remarkable says, subject.
1: Somebody has to tell Randy, and there's a pressure... That exists, and it comes from publishing, I think, and other sources. Things that have capital letters, there's a pressure to remove yes. the capital letters over time. Things that have names of a, a name of a person as a name of the thing, you get rid of that capital in the name. You get rid of accents and any kind of diacriticals over time. So Randy, in mm-hmm. his own writing, probably every you know 600 words uses a word mm-hmm. that in 1820 had a diacritical. Right. And, and They just used to be. We it, it used to be. We always left them on there. You leave them on there for a decade or two until the printing presses mm-hmm. finally say, "Just leave it off." You know, and and then they stop. And all a lot of our borrowed words from German and French have diacriticals in when they're you know mm-hmm. years ago. And I think these days they get lost sooner. Which yeah, tough.
2: and these things are conventions. Well, they, you know, yeah. they're um, they're they're not set in stone. Uh, they're just constructs, social constructs, the, the way that we use them and uh, and they do change and um, you know, there are updates and you know, things things change and uh, you, you've got to really go with the flow and understand that this doesn't mean that former versions are wrong or uh, that contemporary versions are somehow bad or wrong. Um, it, it's really just the, the very nature of language and, and I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and There's very the little versions.
1: symmetry and there's very little Consistency. Uh, One example I I, I think about sometimes is how you pronounce the name of a person or place that is associated with a different language. So in America today, if you say the name of a thing that is Spanish, like a country Mm -hmm. in which Spanish is the main language, or the name of a person, like the president of Bolivia, you need to say it, if you're a really good newscaster, you need to say it in that accent. You need to switch right. into a Spanish accent as though you were a fluent Spanish speaker. And I, I'm pretty sure that there's like a hundred different Spanish accents. So there's no way you've yeah. actually done it correctly for everybody. But oh, yeah. if you, if yeah, you say yeah. something African, you don't. There's no, there's no requirement mm-hmm. to say an African name pronounced and pronounce it even close. And, and, and so it's just like, there's. I'm not saying that that's a particularly, I'm not suggesting here that there's a, a, a racist hierarchy in that particular comparison, but we just happen to do it with mm-hmm. Spanish stuff because Spanish is almost a second language in the United States, and so it shows this. And yes, I don't it think is. Every I
2: think it's the fastest growing language here.
1: Yeah. Um, so we're uh, say
0: so uh, Mombasa instead of Mombasa, or however they say Well, Kilimanjaro it.
1: is a great example. Yeah. Kilimanjaro is not the predict- correct uh, way to pronounce that mountain mm-hmm. name. Ubuntu is correct. Ubuntu is not, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So, I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it, is, it mostly doesn't important, but um, uh, how you pronounce course,
2: Kenya? I think it's definitely kind of code switching, uh, and you know I, I've heard that certainly watching uh, news programs from other languages too, and they'll use an English term and they'll break into a American English accent or a British English accent or something. And again, you know what's a British English accent? There are just so many different accents still in the UK, although a lot of them are leveling. But uh, yeah, I think it's kind of code switching. So um, or code the older term was code mixing, but people, some linguists have complained about that because it's kind of implied that you don't know what you're doing, but there are very good reasons for people to switch between either dialects or to switch between, uh, accents. And uh, I tend to do that too. I mean, I'm bi dialectal having uh, Mm. spent half of my life in growing up in Australia and now the other half so far in in the U S and, um, I, I really switch between dialects and switch between accents to a certain point too. I think when I go home, uh, I was home quite recently. Uh, I mean, and, and that's a relative thing too. When I'm in Australia, here is home. And when I'm here, mm-hmm. that's home. Uh, but I will switch to more of a, a broader Australian English. And I think that's in an attempt to be
3: mm-hmm.
2: to be understood better there. Um, and, and here, I think I'll, I'll tend to, maybe pronounce my R's a little bit more, especially with my, around my four year old, we're obviously teaching him language and I'm not wanting to confuse him too much. I mean, there's certainly a lot of literature to show that children who are raised, uh, people used to think, or even linguists used to think that children who were raised um, as bilingual were somehow one language would suffer, you know, either the first language would suffer or the second language would suffer. And we're finding now that's not the case that children uh, who who are bilingual? That um, it's a very good thing for the brain, and it, it helps with development. And
0: uh, so, is, oh, the other thing too is, and I apologize for interrupting again, but um, the other thing too is that they they're they're finding that children that are raised bilingually, um, like my nephew, speaks both English and Farsi, um, have a greater wow. degree of um empathy because in order to be able to understand which grandma you're talking to in which language you have to be able to place yourself in her perspective so that you know that you're speaking to her in the right mm-hmm. language right. and so that's a really advantage right. really big advantage for for them so maybe your son by trying to speak one form of English to his dad and one form of English with you will be more empathetic yeah. as he grows mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I think that's really interesting. And he is definitely by dialectal uh, already. I mean, he uses, um, you know, when it comes to dialectal terms, you know, uh, he will use different, he'll use Australian terms, he'll also use uh, English, uh, American English terms. And uh, his accent is an interesting mix at the moment too, because he'll say, oh, I I can't do this. And yet he has uh, just such a perfect little R pronunciation. Uh, And and again, I think with with him, when he was raised at home with me and uh, I was his primary caregiver, he was sounding more like me. But now that he has started preschool since last October, he's very quickly assimilated to the American English accent.
1: Yeah, he'll have one of those accents. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah, he'll have one of those accents where you can tell that he has a parent with a British accent, but he'll have an American oh, yeah, accent. I mean, but there'll be this British imprint overprint on his accent that people who are tuned to that kind of thing will be able oh, to yeah, he,
2: right away. Yeah. They think it's hilarious or cute and cute, and he'll just be running around saying, oh, "I can't, I can't do this," and mm-hmm, and they think it's right. just really sweet and and uh, uh yeah.
1: Talk about your books a little bit. We already talked about the book we can't buy. Sure. And we talked a little bit about the book that isn't out yet, so we can't buy that one either. But uh, I have been—I have read good large chunks of uh, Language Myths, Mysteries and Magic, lacking a Oxford comma in the title. But
2: um, oh, geez. and and again, I boy, I mean that was published through Palgrave Macmillan, and and uh, Macmillan is you know, one of the big six publishers. And I have some stories to share at some point just about the okay. the terrible editing process that they had. And uh, again, using the Oxford comma, that is just a matter of, dare I say, prejudice and bias and and preference. Uh, And I did put it in there when I submitted the book and they queried it. And I said, look, you do what you want to do. And they took it out. But it was actually all the editing was outsourced to India.
1: Oh, you think they'd use the Oxford comma.
2: (laughs) Well, I I can't tell you how many things. I mean, when they edited the book, I had to edit it again myself. Oh. And generally you do that, as you know, it goes back and forth between the uh, the author and the publisher uh yeah. several times. You have different iterations of the book. But uh yeah, I I had inserted jokes and they uh jokes that were uh you know just figurative jokes and and they
3: right.
2: uh, had me explain things and so I had these sections where I, I would have a joke and then I would have in parentheses I would explain what the joke was. And so they would leave <laughs> those in it's like you don't explain a joke to people so mm-hmm. they're just in one part I, I had look this is funny because and they left it in there <laughs> so uh, so many problems with that but I think uh, again that's just a matter of preference uh, regarding uh, the Oxford comma and I think eventually that might drop out Something am uh, indicators that it's a- going to drop out
1: Yeah, AP is saying no more Oxford Comma. Um, mm-hmm. just, just there say, you go <laughs> But uh, yeah, so uh, about that, about that idea of you have things in a book or anything else you write and and the editor doesn't see it or get it. So they need to have it clarified. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's an interesting thing because, you know, obviously what you write is not meant for every single person to understand everything you said literally because right. it just doesn't work that way. Uh, there's a great example yeah. of, of author versus editor. It isn't about this exactly, but it's about content is Gore book, is it, his book is, uh, it's either Creation. It's his book about Xerxes, the, yes, Creation, about the, the, uh, the Persian and, and Greek interactions during the Persian Wars. And it's a, it's a great novel full of funny stuff, as far as you have that kind of thing in a sort of novel. But, but he has a new edition of it and starts off saying, when I wrote this book, my editors removed, like, three entire chapters from the beginning because I said it was too long and this stuff's a bit too racy. But today is different. Today, they, then they were famous publishers and I was a nobody. Today, I am Corvidal. <laughs> so they're back. Yeah. All that stuff is back in the yeah. book now. But, um, but, you know, I, I think I, I, I recommend Language, Mis- Mysteries, and Magic to people because it it actually has a feature of what you have written about that I like about stuff you've done, including that and what, and what would you believe it. And that is instead of being a skeptic who says there's a correct view of the world and then there's everyone else's view Mm -hmm. of the world you actually acknowledge the fact that to some extent you imply you know that language does have magical abilities we're not really saying that as magical abilities but you can but 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 language has power and potency and belief has you know belief is meaningful and and Mm -hmm. in my, in my view there's not really it's not really true that skeptics and scientists come to what they think to be true through scientific reasoning, and everyone else is using some <laughs> belief system that we evolved to have, there also have the method mm-hmm. that we all evolved, the method of our, how our mind comes to know or believe things. Even skeptics have that same mind. And Obby, it is yeah. so easy to find we're human. Yeah, we're all human. and so easy to find things in a skeptical community where people actually have beliefs that are completely untenable, but they have culturally been imbued into the skeptical way of thinking. And it's their own receipt mm-hmm. knowledge, which is simply wrong. But it's what mm-hmm. yep. some famous, like Randy, told them to believe. Like, for example, that you must have the ax, the diacritical on the AMA. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. And uh, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I, we're, we're all humans. And uh, it's a matter of just how self-effacing we are about that. And I know I have my superstitions. And I know I have my blind spots. And I think a lot of skeptics, unfortunately, are unaware of those areas. And it's, um, you know, I, I've had lots of conversations with skeptics and atheists over the years. And of course, they're not always the same thing. Uh, it, being a, an atheist doesn't necessarily mean that you're a skeptic. Being a skeptic doesn't necessarily mean that you're an atheist. Right. Uh, but I remember being at some events years ago and uh Richard Dawkins was there. It was in Colorado Springs. And he started having a conversation. Uh, I was having a conversation with him and my husband and a few other people were there. And someone started talking about uh, or recommending homeopathy. And uh, he said, oh, I I don't know anything about that. And um, he, I think, was inclined to think that there might have been something to it. He just wasn't really sure. And uh, then my husband started talking about um, the the kinds of things that he and I have done, so paranormal investigations from a skeptical perspective, you know paranormal research and uh, he he uh, said something along the lines of how oh he could never do that kind of thing uh, because he 's just really gullible you know and it was just interesting to hear about his own blind spots and his uh, i mean here here he is one of the most famous atheists alive, and uh yet he was just showing a lack of skepticism in some areas when it came to homeopathy and, and mm-hmm. ghost hunting. And, uh, it was just like, wow, it was really interesting to see that, that absolutely. We all have blind spots. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: we're just not always self-effacing about them. And certainly lots of, lots of skeptics have uh, a lot of areas where they experience or that they have they're prejudiced and they just don't, don't see this at all. And it can be quite an interesting thing to see and to catch them on it. and um, I mean, it's not like a gotcha thing, but, but they're just unaware of it and, and unwilling to to be aware of it.
1: You know, I think it's helpful. It, w- it would be helpful. I wish I had been, go, could go back in time and change some things about the conversation that happened several years ago around things like elevator gates and all that stuff. And, uh, and, to, mm-hmm. and I wanted to shake people and say, Richard Dawkins is not a skeptic. But he's not an atheist. Oh, he happens to be an atheist. He's not really a skeptic. What he is, is a behavioral biologist. He's actually an evolutionary biologist who's also a professor. Mm-hmm. He's a professor and head of department. So, when you get a professor, yeah. one thing you get from that is very often a sense that everyone else will have to sense that that person can therefore be smart at everything that they do. Mm-hmm. And he comes from oh, an yeah. academic background as a biologist, and that's sort of how I know him. I didn't, you know, I knew him, and that's in that the times I've met him have been at, at biology conferences and not at skeptics conferences. And so, he has right. important and interesting things to say. He is not we're looking for a pure, the skeptics movement was looking for a purity in Richard Dawkins that could never have been there unless he changed his career in his twenties.
2: Yes. Yeah. Nicely said that that's absolutely the case. And I think it's like when we go seeking uh, political opinions from celebrities outside of their areas of expertise and uh, the same thing for me too. I mean, I've, you know, I'm, I'm a weird kind of hybrid because I am a linguist. Uh, I certainly have written about a lot of things over the years, uh, including alternative medicine um, and you know various areas of science. And I'm certainly talking outside of my expertise in that area. But being a journalist of sorts too, an, an investigative journalist, you go and you do your background research. And that's why you have journalists who, who write in areas of science or, or outside of their immediate field, uh, right. because you do your research. But certainly a lot of these people will, pass judgment, make comments, and uh, they're talking about things that they don't understand. And then there are a lot of people who flock to those comments and uh, uphold them. And then you have these schisms and divisions and factions (laughs) within skepticism and atheism because of it.
0: Yeah. I wanted to move to monster talk a little bit because I've been listening to quite a few um, episodes recently. Um, I I wanted to say that one of the things that I really enjoy about the program, this is a um, show that you host along with Blake Smith or, or Dr. Atlantis and you do discuss like monsters, like Bigfoot and that type of thing. But you've also done some Mm -hmm. shows that have talked about monsters within us, with humans and not necessarily, Mm -hmm. um, uh, what's, what's that term? Um, the type of so-called science where they look for a Bigfoot, but you oh, know, pseudoscience or yeah, pseudosciences. Yeah. But but also how how you approach what makes um, a serial killer or something like that. And do you want to talk to that a, just a little bit?
2: Yeah. Um, well, we we went to um, to Lubbock, Texas, back in February, and it was the first time I'd seen like in years. I think since my wedding, um, and so that that was great to be able to catch up with him and um excuse me we went to lubbock con and we also went to texas tech university so we were introduced there by we were taken there by um the dean of the university of the the communications um department uh uh, gosh david Perlmutter. so (laughs) please take out that pause there but uh he so we interviewed him uh whilst we were there and we got to use the the communication department's um, facilities. And that was fantastic. And so he's written a number of books about, uh, you know, humans as monsters and uh, war and uh, the military. Um, so we're really starting to get into this area. And I guess monsters do come from us anyway. Monsters are created by us, um, you know, fictional monsters. Um, and, and also humans are capable of being monsters. So we've done a number of shows where we spoke with uh, Eric Kerlander about mm-hmm. Hitler and um, the Nazis' Paranormal Program and all the very strange things that they do, did in their attempts to uh, just try and have power over the, the entire globe. Uh, so we actually did record an interview last week uh, with a fellow called Stacey Sharp and he was actually a, um, a former, um, uh, he was in the, the Navy along with Blake. And so he has since worked in law enforcement And so we did an entire episode on serial killers. And I mean, there's just such a wealth of information when it comes to humans as monsters. And so we're really starting to explore that. And it's just a very, very interesting thing. I mean, humans are absolutely the most frightening monsters. And, um, you know, we can look at various creatures that are fictional or real. And certainly they can be frightening as predators and, the kind of creatures that might want to kill and eat us, but uh, there's certainly that kind of savage aspect there of, of animals and uh, the food chain. Uh, but when it comes to humans doing wrong to other humans, that's something that's very difficult to deal with, uh, how we can be so cruel and so malicious uh, and so destructive. And the things that, that humans do, genocide, um, the kinds of things that are going on in the United States right now that are very inhuman um inhumane um uh, it's a it's a very difficult thing to confront the the monsters within us
0: we spend so much time worrying about whether or not to call it uh concentration camps that we kind of sidetrack the conversation away from what's really going on yeah Now we also have to be careful too, not to um not to approach those sorts of things with such a fascination that we forget that there are actually human victims in there and there's a podcast that I really enjoyed too um, with by Ollie Ward and uh, called Ologies and she had interviewed a professor of victimology who says well before you put up t-shirts for a serial killer you might want to think about the people who actually died at their hands and we should be studying those and how do we help people recover from that as well.
2: Thank you so much for saying that and that's actually something that uh, we explored in this interview the other the day and so i think it's gonna come out in a couple of weeks and um, hopefully you'll get to check that out and uh it's something that we addressed and we were very reluctant to do a show on serial killers and we wanted to for years and we've been very mindful of this kind of serial killer porn um Mm -hmm. as i think blake referred to it and uh with the ted bundy movie that came out the netflix uh movie and um, I mean, there is such a fascination, but it's only with a number of serial killers. It's not with, all, there, are, there are unfortunately plenty of them around, but there are a number of them who've been romanticized. There are a number of them who have been uh, glorified. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to pay more homage to the victims. And it's just, it was something that I raised. That's so a very sad thing that uh, we know Ted Bundy's name. We know the names of all of these other serial killers. Uh, but we don't remember the names of
1: the victims. Mm-hmm. And you know, in uh, you know, uh, yeah, in, in American culture, there are probably if we look at the police procedurals that are on TV, I don't mm-hmm. know. There's actually one or two shows that are just serial killers every every time, and then there's a few others where there's an the occasional serial killer. And if you add, I've never sat down and added this up, but if you add it up, two or three shows with ten year runs and twenty episodes a show, a, a season. Mm-hmm. There's six, seven, eight hundred known serial killers that have been active over the last 30 years in American fiction. Is, mm-hmm. and, and of course, we know what they're like because we see the TV shows in which they are characterized by the cops that catch them and we see what they do. Right. Is there any connection at all between mm-hmm. the television version of serial killers and actual serial killers? Are, they, is, is there, are there huge misconceptions out there? Do you, do you explore that at all?
2: Uh, we we do go into that, and so our guest talks about that more articulately than I could. But uh, basically, you media does play a very large part in the romanticizing romanticizing uh, of these characters and um, in, in the glorifying glorification of them to really turn them into something that they're not. So, example for for Ted Bundy, the fact that uh, uh, he is seen as a sex symbol, the fact that his people talk about him having a background in law and, and that he represented himself uh, and the, the way that he's portrayed as being this interesting, intelligent character. Um, when, when in reality, I think he was a failed law student mm-hmm. and um, you know, now he's being played by well, Zac Efron or something um, and you know, being presented as a sex symbol when, you know, he, he's just a, excuse my language, he's a yeah. is a piece of shit, law is a piece of shit um and it's just remarkable the way that the media have um represented him as being this uh this nice guy i mean how how do they do that it's just this narrative that they've woven and and, uh it's it's not not the reality it's not factual um and yet it's what people want to buy and uh you know, you you do hear these other podcasts that talk about serial killers, and mm-hmm. um, there's just they go into graphic detail about what they did. And we didn't want to do anything like that. You know, we we didn't want to kind of tear everything apart. We wanted to talk in, in more in terms of uh, the psychology of these people, and sure. you know, uh, even definitions. You know, what is a serial killer? And um, and uh, so we we just wanted to um to treat the topic with I think a bit more deference than, than other shows.
1: <laughs> yeah. we look forward to hearing it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we'll definitely put a link to that. It'll be very interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, but it is, I think we will treat the topic again because there's so much more to explore. And again, we've just, we've just started to get into this area of, of looking at, you know, man as monsters, humans as monsters and, uh, you know, what people are capable of. And, and there's just so much fodder for that, unfortunately.
1: I expect to see a lot more of that kind of story with the new medium that has emerged. That what was the uh, brilliant mind or whatever is about a woman who ended up being sort of the the the, the brains behind a serial killer story, and the other story of the guy who had wore the bomb around his neck, robbing a bank, the Ted Bundy thing recently, the guy who may or may not have been a killer in Wisconsin. There's been three or four of these multi-part <laughs> series. About these stories, and they are successful. I don't think they're super expensive to make. No big stars are in them, and mm. there's going to be a lot of those. There's, they're going to be they're, they're, that kind of show is going to be a genre that develops and starts to produce a few a year. I think. But so, it
0: even goes you know, back further. Cool. I mean, you know, Charles Starkweather. People know who that is because. There was a movie that Martin Sheen starred as Darkweather in, like a TV movie. And he was portrayed sure. as kind of like an anti-hero there. And and Bruce mm-hmm. Springsteen wrote a song about him without really talking about the victims at all either. Just talked about how he wanted to have Mary sitting in his lap when he was in an electric chair. And right. so we do not think too much about the the long lasting after effects of what these people do on the people mm-hmm. that are left behind. Um,
2: yes, yeah, their families. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, uh, that was one of the questions I, I raised too. Like, why are we fascinated with these characters? Why do we have this fascination? And so we, we do explore that. Um, you know, I think that there's a kind of fear. I mean, there's a lot that's taboo about these things, but it's like a kind of train wreck, you know, that we still are, are fascinated by them and want to find out the gory details. But I think there's a lot of fear and taboo that's surrounding these people and these stories as well. Um, well, you know and um, one one thing sorry no go ahead one thing that Blake asked about and I thought this was an interesting question how do you protect yourself how do you avoid uh, becoming a victim of these people and obviously you can only do that to some extent a lot of other factors come into this uh but uh we we do delve into that too and I thought that was an interesting question
0: and that's kind of a dangerous question to ask I think because um one of the things that it does when you start talking about that is kind of sends the message to the people that are victims that they're at fault yeah
2: yes oh yeah we we did talk about victim blaming too because you know in the case of Ted Bundy how he uh tried to cost or tried to get women to assist him and that he had a fake broken arm that was in plaster. And, uh, that, you know, these, these were good people who tried to help him. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's not that they're fools. It's not that they're, uh, that they did the wrong thing. We definitely do not want to victim blame. You're absolutely right. That's just you, walking a really fine line in all of this.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about something cheerful then as a, as a close? Um, Please, <laughs> I, I'm really enjoying the book. Um, hits, hits, and misses, um, and I'm reading both Thank of you. that and uh, God Bless America simultaneously. But uh, you, you've got a great sense of humor in the way that you write the character of Gil Godson. And it's not a spoiler because it comes out in the first chapter. He is uh, a psychic that uses his cold reading skills or his warm reading skills in many cases too. To convince uh, these widows that their dead husband mm-hmm. is there in the room and basically mm-hmm. overtakes his body, so that he rapes these women, and, and that's not the cheery part, but the. <laughs> the, the <way> <laughs>
3: I'm gonna the, say.
0: <laughs> the way that you write the story and the way that you write the characters um, is is a lot of fun to read, and especially. I, I like Claudia. I like Claudia. I think she's a fantastic character you want to tell a little bit more Thank about the you. novel and um, one of my favorite people, Banachek?
2: Yes, that was good fun. I think, you know, I, I really, uh, I mean, again, it's a work of fiction, but uh, after spending so many decades now in the skepticism movement and coming across all of these different figures, uh, there are certainly some uh, people that do, it, some some of the characters in the book that do reflect real life characters and one of those is obviously Banachek that's mm-hmm. modelled uh, on on uh, his character and as a mentalist, uh, as a magician uh, and as as a sceptic as well and uh, so in the book Claudia does approach him many times to try and, and be able to, to catch this girl godsend and he is a kind of composite figure too of a, a lot of Various psychics and psychic mediums that are out there, and and people that I know as well. I mean, these these characters really do exist. Was so, Banachek the um, name of yeah. a TV series at one point <laughs> or
1: something?
0: Yeah, George Papard, I think played Banachek. Yeah, but he's um, that's not, that's not his real name.
2: No, he's Steve Steve Shaw is his yeah. real name, and uh, the Vanacek is his his,
1: his station name, screen yeah.
2: name. His yeah. stage his name. Uh, and uh so I'm not really too sure where Banachek comes from, but he's been using that name for a long time now. Um, but certainly, if we think of things like the Alpha Project, he was known as Steve Shaw then.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
2: so uh, he's a um, South, uh, South African. Uh, I mean, he's another citizen of the world. He's, I think he spent some time growing up in Australia too and the UK. And now uh, yeah, he's living in Las Vegas at the moment. Um, so yeah, he's, he's got interesting background. That he's, um, you know, with all of the people that we've we've talked about that have been disappointing in skepticism, he's one of those people that I've never lost respect for. Uh, good. Well,
0: yeah, he's he's fantastic. He was here in in Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota. I went to see him, not really being aware, and um, mm-hmm. and just think that he was able to do with several people at one time, uh, teasing out information about them. Just based on mm-hmm. appearance or the way they looked or something that they said, and then remembering it after having gone through several other people and going back to that person and, and revealing something about them that he had been able to get from a cold reading. Uh, he's just fantastic at what he does.
2: Oh, he is. I mean, the things that he can do, he's probably the the world's or oh, he's the the world's best mentalist and one of the world's best magicians. And pen and teller have gone to him uh, for to purchase tricks from him. Um, I think that. Uh, bullets in the mouth catching the, the bullets uh in, in his teeth trick that uh oh. pen does he actually got from banachek and uh banachek worked for chris angel and has created a lot of his um you know his uh tricks and he i mean he's a friend of my family's and um he's a wonderful person and he has um told me that he's been approached by a number of television producers and who uh, who work in the areas of um, you know the paranormal and that they've wanted him to create various special effects for their shows so that says a lot about mm-hmm. the shows that you watch on, on tv and that you need to be skeptical when you see um alleged hauntings and paranormal activity but you need to to question that and to think mm, was that created by a magician
1: yeah, hopefully. A and good he hasn't vision. done
2: that. He's he's not the kind of guy who would who do that. He's very ethical.
1: Mm-hmm. But the important thing is to create it skillfully so that it's at least good entertainment.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing you do watch a lot of these shows like Ghost Adventures and Ghost Hunters, and they have um, the little disclaimers at the end of the show saying this show is just for entertainment purposes only. Yeah. So you, you've got to take them with a grain of salt, but there are certainly a lot of people who believe these things are real. Thank
0: you for listening, and please share this with friends and fellow language users. I want to thank our guest, Karen Stallsno and to apologize to you that it took so long to post it after our interview. Don't forget to go to the show notes at iconocast.com and check out the links both to the books and to the Monster Talk site. Before you forget, go to your podcaster, search for Monster Talk, and subscribe. Buy books, learn, share, and talk.